You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. This is uh, part two on um, a series I'm doing that I take from my book. Andy mentioned Harbinger of Hope. And you can get uh, part one on our queencity.church website. Um, Let me give you a little bit of history so this will make more sense. How many of you were not here last week? Let me just see how many. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of background. I had uh, I had an encounter with the Lord in I believe it was two two thousand and eleven, and in that encounter, without going into a whole lot of detail, um, the Lord showed me um, five wagons of spiritual blessing that He wanted the world to benefit from, and uh, those five wagons were. Deliverance from deserved consequences. Deliverance from criticism and the critical spirit. There was a wagon of abundance. There was a wagon of hope. And there was a wagon of a new vision for our, for our nation. And, uh, there were wagons. One reason there were wagons was, um, as a prophetic image of how you access what's in them, you pull the wagon by its tongue, and they have spoke or spoken wheels. And so that speaks of with the heart man believes uh, unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So it's an interesting picture. And the Lord told me or revealed to me in, in the encounter that I would understand uh, this whole five wagon thing by reading and uh, really meditating on the story of the restoration of Joseph to Jacob and his brothers. And so what I want us to do is I want us to jump into Genesis 45, 25 through 28, and uh, a little bit of the history here that Jacob has believed that Joseph has been dead for 22 years. And... He basically, upon hearing Joseph was dead, he swore he would go down to his grave in sorrow. And so you can imagine over two decades of heartache over this particular situation. Um, now, the amazing thing was Joseph was not dead. And it opens up, um, it opens up some spiritual principles or concepts or ideas that I think are essential, and I want to talk about some of those today because it, it's, um, it's an understanding that can take you from hopelessness into hope. It's a way of um, getting out of a real spiritual malaise or a funk. And so for 22 years, Jacob, the father of the 12 sons that became Israel, he believed that Joseph had been dead for 22 years, and in the second year of a serious famine, he sent his sons to Egypt to um, get provision, and they discovered in Egypt that Joseph was not only alive, he was basically Lord of all. He was in control 
of the storehouse of Egypt. And that's, that's really a prophetic picture of, in some ways, the way the church is related to the Lord Jesus. The church, in, in, in large measure, has lived as though Jesus is dead, not alive. And so all the typology that you see through this story, all of it speaks to how encouraged we should be to understand and know the heart of God and see what it is he wants to do for each one of us. But there are many Christians who honestly, they live as though Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. They live as though he's not alive. They live as though he doesn't really have any interest in helping them when nothing could be further from the truth. And so um, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, and they discovered their brother that they had dealt with terribly, threw him in a ditch, sold him into bondage, almost killed him. They found out that he had a merciful viewpoint. He had, he had a heart of kindness towards them. And so he takes them through a very interesting process we can't get into. And I have a feeling that, that, uh, he sent his brothers. They were sort of jumping through hoops. I think the process that, um, Joseph was going through was the process it took for him to determine if he was going to really forgive and release them or not. I think he really had to deal with uh, what they had done to him. But anyway, uh, he, God prevailed. Joseph just loved him. He, he, I think in, in the, in, in the book of Genesis, it's in the whole story. Joseph wept five times over how much he loved his brothers and missed them. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. Now, um, so the brothers come back and when they go back to their father, they take with them, um, 10 donkeys laden with all the wealth, the blessing, the food, the provision of Egypt and wagons. And they send these wagons back to transport that entire tribe back to Egypt because Pharaoh, the only one higher in the nation than Joseph himself, had told Joseph, we want your family to live in the very best part of our nation, which was called Goshen. And so they go back and they tell their brother, I'm sorry, they tell their father, uh, Joseph is alive. And that's where we jump into Genesis 45. So why don't we read this together? They being the brothers. What was that? Was any, Anybody identify that was like a bird? I don't know what that was. But anyway, verse 26 they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived." Verse 28, then Israel said, well, who was Israel? Yeah, Jacob and Israel are the same person. But something so significant happened to Jacob in a single moment in time that his nature changed. For any man to be in Christ, he's a... Yeah, it's actually a new creation. It's, it's something that's never been seen before.
But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Now, that's the first time in the Bible that word revive or revival is used. And I believe the significance of what I saw in the heavens when I had that encounter was this. If we can lay hold, if we can access the provision I saw, it could change our nation. It really could release revival. Now, I'm I'm not foolish enough to think if that happened, it was all about me and all about my book. But I know this, when God speaks um, uh, for seasons to change, he speaks in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. And I believe I'm part of a proclamation that God intends to change our nation. But he's going to do it if we will lay hold of what the gospel really has declared is ours. And so he gives these prophetic pictures because we get so bored with what we've been reading. Uh, We're so used to religion that doesn't work that we don't understand embedded in the words of the things that sometimes have become dead to us are life-changing realities that we've somehow become deaf to. We've, We've somehow blocked our ears or hardened our hearts. And I believe that's one of the things the Lord's going to do. He's going to renew our vision to see who Jesus is and to see what he has and to see what he's done and to see how he really feels about us. And so it says, Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so one of the things I want to draw attention to is process. To get where you're going, you go through a process. You can't get from here to there without steps in between. Because all the steps are important. We have to understand certain things about God and certain things about ourselves and certain things about how things actually work in process so that we can change and develop. And right here in Genesis 45, I see um, four different things. The first thing is in verse 26, it says, Jacob's heart stood still. Actually, the literal language is his heart stopped. He could have had a heart attack. I don't know. He could have fainted. But the news he heard from his sons that Joseph was still alive was too good to be true. And Joseph had a literal response in his body, Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. And we have got to understand the relationship between what we believe and how it affects us on every single level of our being, body, soul, spirit. Our emotions, our thoughts, our choices, our decisions are the sum total of what we actually believe. Not what we say, Not what we ascend to, but what we honestly, really believe. What we believe has the power to actually transform our bodies, transform our minds, and transform the way we see things. There you go. One of my tinderbox buddies back there on the third row. Jacob's heart stood still because he didn't believe them. A lot of people may not have physical heart trouble, but you got spiritual heart trouble. How many of you got a talking heart? How many of you have arguments with people who aren't even in the room with you? 
Yeah, who are you arguing with? I, I have uh, awakened in the night arguing with somebody, and the Lord said, He's not here. And that's funny, but it's only funny because it's true. You are doing that to yourself and you're blaming it on the devil or demons or something, but you are really the only one there having a conversation with yourself. You're both speaking and listening, but they are not there. That's a truth, a profound truth that can deliver us from years of needless anxiety and ridiculous internal discussions that don't even exist, and half of them we don't have the guts to say anyway. Listen to that. Boy, nobody nobody clapped on that one, but that's all right. Okay, that's okay. If I can't earn it, I don't want it. Now, verse 27. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. When he finally got over the shock, when when the 22-year despair got dislodged, Ladies and gentlemen, you will never be happy until you can admit you're wrong about some pretty important things. Oh, man. Man, that's enough right there. I'm just going to go sit down. I'm, I'm serious. When he changed his mind, when he believed the truth, the spirit of Jacob came alive Again, to the degree that he manifested that high calling over his life, which, which is represented by that name, Israel, that prince with God. He went from the schemer and the supplanter to a prince in one single moment in time because he changed what he believed, what he believed about his son, what he believed about whether he was dead or alive, and what he believed about the God that would allow him to go through that process. Joseph, my son is still alive. He said, it is enough. Well, that sounds like, that's a crummy, that's a real, that's a low level translation of that word. It is enough. It was a one word exclamation that can't be completely verbalized with one word. But here's what he was really saying. And here's where his life transformed. He said, I cannot believe how much this is. This is way more than I could have ever dreamed or ever imagined. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. We just never have seen it until the gospel is too good to be true. You haven't seen it in its fullness yet. That's what I'm asking for. Actually, the apostle Paul would send a letter, I believe it was to the Ephesians, and he would say, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. What he was saying was, I'm praying that you will finally see in the depths of your heart what this gospel is really all about at its most profound and deep level. Listen, there is more. Please say that with me. There is more. There's more. My, my. Thank you, Jesus. It is enough. This is more than I could have ever imagined. 
What if God loves you more than you'd ever imagined? I remember early one morning as I was, um, as I was waking up, the Lord, I, I, we say it's the Lord, I, you know, I believe it was the Lord. Those thoughts you have. He said, each one of my children is my own personal favorite. That means from my perspective, God considers me to be his favorite person in the world. Well, he, he feels that way about you. But he was talking to me. Then he said, and very few believe it. What would your life be like if you really profoundly, you, you didn't get the bumper sticker, you didn't get the tattoo, but you really did believe you are God's favorite person. I don't care what happens in anybody's life. There's no greater tragedy than that to be true and not to know it. And there are plenty of tragedies to go around, believe me. But what a tragedy to wake up every day as though nobody cares about you when instead the God of the universe who gave his life to ransom you from judgment and wrath and all those other things, who, who did it when you didn't deserve it, who continues to grace you as you still don't deserve it, and you don't even know it. You're wandering through life like some kind of a uh, a pauper, like damaged goods, like unclaimed freight sitting in a corner of the warehouse nobody's interested in. When instead... The God of the universe thinks about you relentlessly. One of the quotes from my book says this, because, you know, harbinger of hope. Harbinger is a messenger or a forerunner. Um, John the Baptist was a harbinger of the coming of Jesus. Robin's a harbinger of springtime. In other words, when you see the robin, you know spring's right around the corner. If people had eyes to see, they, they knew if John the Baptist was here, the Messiah is surely to come. He was a harbinger. And so the encounter I had was a harbinger of hope. Because hope is so essential. Um, hope securely built upon the better promises of God has fueled the fire of faith that has produced every major spiritual breakthrough down through the ages. Hope is connected, directly connected to promises. Promises are directly connected to the honor and integrity of God who cannot lie. And so when you don't have hope, you have gotten disconnected from the reality of his promises that he's poured throughout throughout the, the scripture, both Old and New Testament. But he wants to reconnect us to those promises. The new covenant, the Bible says, uh, he has now obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as Jesus is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. There's no consistent strong faith apart from living hope in our hearts for faith is the substance of things hoped for. You see that in Hebrews 11.1. 1. We were on vacation a couple of weeks ago at the beach, and HarperCollins 
they have they have a tremendous reach. They have a devotional that goes to two million people. And and since I'm doing this book, they asked me if I would provide a devotional for them. So I I sent them these three different ideas, and they took two of them. But as I was thinking through it, I felt like the Lord began to speak to me about faith, hope, and love. The Bible says, but there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And I thought, well, what's what's the difference in faith, hope, and love? And one one of the things I thought was they're like three sisters. Hope says, I know things will work out. I just don't know how or when. Her sister Faith says, things have already worked out even before they do an actual experience. And love says, even if they don't work out, even if I don't understand what's going on, nothing can separate me from the affection God has for me. And the reality of these three sisters is that faith works by love. And as you experience the love of God, it increases your hope. And when your hope enlarges, it becomes the very substance of faith. And so the Bible tells us faith, hope, and love are so important, but the most important one is love. Because if love is received and understood in the biblical context, both hope and faith will emerge from it. Three sisters. Faith says it's done. Hope says I expectantly wait for it with patience. Love says whether it happens or not, nothing can separate me from God's affection. I felt like that was the Lord making those distinctions. Everybody okay? Okay. Now, all of us have the capacity for hope. Let's say that together. I have a high capacity for hope. I have a high capacity for hope. It's much closer to us than we often recognize. The Bible says when we're born again, we are translated into a brand new kingdom. Actually, what we're translated into is a sphere of hope. We're actually put into a new atmosphere. You have the potential to be breathing something you're Next door neighbor who doesn't really know the Lord doesn't have access to. The Weiss translation, this is uh, Romans 8, 24 and 25. For we were saved, is it up here? Yeah, for we were saved in what? The sphere of hope. But hope that has been seen is not hope. For that which a person sees, why does he hope for it? Yeah, one of the characteristics of hope is that you don't see or really technically have what it is you hope for. But that is a very important process. That is a very important part of your process. If you are hopeless, you are not likely to, to have the kind of faith that will help change you and change your circumstance. You have got to begin to develop a life lived in that sphere of hope. That's got to be your orientation. That's got to be your default concept. That's got to be the lowest place you fall in your mind. But hope that has been seen is not hope for that which a person sees. Why does he hope for it? But if that which we do not see, we hope for through patience, we expectantly wait for it. Hope's like a spiritual bubble. It's like a sphere. Abiding in that sphere creates attitudes of confidence. It becomes the inward spiritual environment that fortifies our patience and sustains the power 
of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I like that word atmosphere. When you're thinking about living in the sphere of hope, you can hyphenate that verb, that word. So now, atmos dash sphere. Paul lived in that hope atmosphere. He boldly proclaimed. You know, think about the apostle Paul. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, um, certain of the other letters he wrote, so full of hope, so full of faith, were written from prison. He's being imprisoned um, unrighteously, not for crimes, but for a belief system other people didn't agree with. They put him in prison. They locked him up at times. They had him in chains. And so he writes these letters, but he writes letters of faith, and he writes letters of grace, and he writes letters um, of hope because his atmosphere was internal, not external. Uh, you know, one, one of the um, most serious delusions people can have is that it's someone else's responsibility to make them happy. Ultimately, no other person, no matter what they do, how wealthy they are, can literally make you happy in your heart of hearts, no matter how hard they try, no matter how perfect they are. You have the sole responsibility for your own personal joy and your own personal happiness. And as long as you blame other people for your own personal attitudes, you will never have the ultimate solution to how to live a joyful, happy life. That's all there is to it. It's very clear. Now, can people do things that make you unhappy? Yeah, they can. But what if they do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You deal with it. A lot of unhappiness comes when we're trying to make people different than they are. Good luck with that. I'm married way up. Nothing about my wife needed to change to make me happy. I used to, when I was getting ready to get married, I said, Dad, I'm thinking about marrying this girl. And he's, I said, you got any advice? He said, yes. He said, uh, you make your choices and you take your chances. Good luck. <laughs> She's just smiling back there. She's... <laughs> She is now I've had to make some changes. But she hadn't. I'm serious. I'm the black sheep of that two person relationship. <laughs> my my third son Andy was at the house yesterday and somehow it came up. He told me uh how he would describe me to his friends because he was talking about packing his bag and he said, Dad, I've just decided I'm going to buy all the same shirt and all the same blue jeans, so I don't have to figure out what to wear in the morning because it confuses me to have to think through that that early in the morning. And I said, yeah, I'm sort of like that myself. <laughs> he said, um, yeah, we're a lot alike, except for that Samuel L. Jackson hat you wear backwards in the winter. 
<laughs> he said, matter of fact, when people ask me what you're like, I said, well, he, he's sort of like Samuel L. Jackson. He just doesn't cuss as much. <laughs> anyway. Because Paul lived in that atmosphere of hope, he boldly proclaimed, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me give you an example of hope. Here's, here's, here's the truth. If you're a really hopeful person, you're going to look stupid to people. You can't live to people and be spiritual. Did you realize that? If you check in your Instagram and Facebook to see how well you're doing, you're in deep trouble. And the worst thing is when people really like you. What? Yeah. If you get happy when all those people like you, you're in trouble. The day's going to come when they ain't going to like you. And then you're going to experience the other side of that merry-go-round. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, moving right along. Let me go. Let me give you an example from, uh, I call it contemporary history, Coach Dean Smith, the Carolina Tar Heel basketball coach. Yeah, come on. Dean Smith coached for 36 years, Carolina. He once owned the record for the most victories in NCAA history with 879. He was a highly innovative strategic thinker and had a reputation for being loyal to each of his players. He continued to send regular notes and encouragements to many of them years after they played for him. His positive, hope-filled attitude permeated every aspect of his life. Dean Smith's hope was contagious and proved to be the deciding factor in great victories on the court. March 2nd, 1974, 4th-ranked, Carolina Tar Heels trailed the Duke Boo, um, Blue Devils. I, I sort of like Duke unless they play Carolina. They were traveled, uh, I'm sorry, they trailed Duke by eight points with 17 seconds left in the game. And so Coach Smith called timeout. His players gathered around him all down in the mouth and he looked him in the eye and this is, this is a picture of of hope. Dean Smith looked at him and he said, we're in great shape. We've got them right where we want them. Isn't this fun? Man, that's a, that's a great life. Yeah. I'll have the devil talk to me sometimes and I'll tell him you're the one that lost. I said, I ain't got strength to pick up a pea. But because of what Jesus did, I beat you. Say what you will. I say, I'm in great shape, devil. I've got you right where I want you. Isn't this fun? Just doesn't look like it. That's what faith, you know, why would we need faith if everything worked out all the time? Why would, why would it be called the Christian faith? It's because stuff falls apart a lot. And that's what your faith, that's what your faith is for. To, to keep you locked in to 
who God is as things fall apart and then reconnect and meanwhile your character gets dealt with, which isn't the most fun. But uh, anyway, with that kind of confidence, Coach Smith sent his players back on the court into a seemingly impossible situation. Carolina picked up two quick points when Bobby Jones hit two foul shots. They scored on a steal. Then they scored again on a uh, turnover of a Duke inbound pass, shortened the gap to two points. After Carolina rebounded on a missed Duke foul shot, Walter Davis hit a last-second 30-foot bank shot to tie the game, sending it into overtime. The Tar Heels claimed a 96-92 to overtime victory that day. Carolina's win is regarded by many as the greatest comeback victory in college basketball history. Inspired by Dean Smith's unshakable hope. Because hope fuels victory in the face of overwhelming odds and is a devil-conquering force. Man, that's really something. Now, I like to uh, I like to sort of analyze hopelessness because I think it helps us if we can recognize um, where it comes from. I think uh, it'll really make a difference to us. Hopelessness is a delusion. It's the consequence. It's the consequence of an inaccurate belief system. And so hopelessness is basically a consequence. It's not a cause. Now, if, if you have hopelessness long enough, it can cause other things to happen. But initially, hopelessness is a delusion, the consequence of an inaccurate belief system. For many in our generation, it's an enormous enemy, but it's an imposter. It's the result of believing a lie or a body of lies. Jesus said in John eight thirty two, you shall what? You shall know the truth, and what will the truth do? It will make you. It will make you free. There there's um our believing Christianity, our believing in Jesus doesn't make it true. It's the fact that it is true and that we believe it that heaven's testimony and heaven's witness to our hearts is a sense of liberty and freedom because how we feel at a given point is a consequence of what we think and what we believe. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall throw you into a horrible tailspin. No, it says it will make you free. Truth is transformational. It has the power to make free. Lies have an opposite detrimental effect. How do you know that your perception of reality is inaccurate? How do you know that what you believe is not true? You're not free. It can be just that simple. The Apostle Paul identified the relationship between what you believe and how it affects you when he wrote, this is in Romans fifteen thirteen. Now look at this verse real closely because it has something that really helps us. Now may who? The God of hope fill you with all 
joy and peace in believing. Why? So that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's what I began to see. And the wonderful thing about rereading the scripture is, um, you know, I'm like five, five decades into reading the Bible. And just this week, I've seen some brand new things in some very familiar places. Now, Paul is talking about the God of hope. In other words, when he talks about the God of hope, he's talking about God and a primary characteristic of God. God is a God of hope. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to fill us with what? Joy and peace. No, all joy and peace. But the way he fills us is through a certain process called believing. And so here's the idea behind this. God is constantly releasing to us um, uh, joy and peace, but it's only beneficial to us when we believe the truth about what he's saying and what he's doing. Because that's the avenue the God of hope releases joy and peace to us. It says he will fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And then the interesting thing is that as you do, you abound in hope. And it sort of works and, and, and builds on itself. Accurate believing produces joy and peace and the abundance of hope. Now, acknowledging the truth is not sufficient to bring freedom. It's the truth you believe is the only truth that really liberates you. In some cases, you may have your facts straight, but still be bound because your understanding is inaccurate. Jesus warned in Luke 8, 18, take heed how you hear. Well, what did that mean? How many times do we attach our own presumptions and assumptions to the things that we believe instead of believing things in a very pure and straightforward sense. Um, if you've drawn inaccurate conclusions, you heard wrong, allow the Holy Spirit to interpret reality for you. All of this is in the book. So we've looked at um, Jacob. We've looked at Jacob's process. I want to take a few more minutes and look at the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I've mentioned several times process, the process Jacob went through from despair into like this high level of hope and faith. And if you read the, the, the book of Jeremiah, one of the things that's happened to me recently, I can't read too much of Jeremiah because I get depressed. Tell you the truth. Because he lived in a horrible, horrible time. You know, you think about these old patriarchs and what they went through. He prophesied the word of the Lord and they lured him into, um, essentially a dry well and they were going to leave him there to die. And, and they say he was the weeping prophet. I'd have been crying too. But, um, you can see, um, a progression in Jeremiah's own internal uh, belief or thought life. In Jeremiah 15, we find him complaining. Then we find that the Lord gives him a diagnosis for his complaint and he gives him a remedy. 
And then in Jeremiah 17, he begins to contrast what happens when you trust yourself as opposed to what happens when you trust the Lord. And in Jeremiah 25, you have um, his conclusion. You know those little noises we've been hearing? I feel like somebody's got a pea shooter out there. <laughs> Every once in a while, they just sort of cut loose. But uh, so far, I'm unscathed. <laughs> I've just heard little noises. <laughs> Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. One of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He walked close to the Lord as one of his spokesmen in his generation. Actually, I think it was to Israel and Judah. But uh, Yet the great prophet was prone to periods of hopelessness and depression. How many of you have uh, inclination sometimes towards hopelessness or depression? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty common, but it doesn't need to be. I think the Lord really wants to deliver us. So in Jeremiah fifteen eighteen, he details this complaint against the Lord. He's in a state of despair, and so he says, Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Now, the interesting thing about Jeremiah in that same chapter, in that same chapter, Jeremiah said, Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And then like two verses later, he's talking this stuff. I like that because... um a lot of us are like that. We can one minute really be on fire, the next minute be down in the dump. So that's just like the human condition. I think one of the things the enemy does is um, we let him beat us up too much when we're not behaving well. Yeah, but mis misbehavior is a common characteristic of uh, humans. So one minute, one minute he's going... I ate your word, and it was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Sound like a, a guy with a religious spirit. Have you ever heard people preach to you one minute and then say horrible things the next and condemn you for something that they do all the time? It's like me driving. I blow my horn at people, and Donna will say Robin, you do that all the time. And I, and I say, and? <laughs> oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. God's good. Oh, bless his name. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> Hell's in the Bible. <laughs> and this is a prophet. This isn't some failed Sunday school teacher, you know. Or... That's, that's the marvel of the Bible. You know, one of the, reasons, um, one of the reasons you should believe the New Testament is that 
They tell on themselves all the time. They tell on themselves. And I, I read something Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was one of the, he was um, Nixon's lawyer and henchman. And he said, here's why I know the Bible's true. These 12 men told the same story for 40 or 50 years, and they got killed for it. We had six guys in the White House. We couldn't keep our story straight for two weeks. <laughs> and he wasn't making a joke. He was saying something profound. These guys had hold of this person, Jesus, and come hell or high water, they weren't letting go of him. They knew something that was so profoundly deep, they would give their lives for him. It's awesome. So, Jeremiah, why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? So, Jeremiah accuses the Lord of being unreliable. Like waters that fail mean waters that cannot be trusted. And so then we have God's response, and I like it in the um, Amplified Translation. And there are several Amplified Translations. This is, I think, the traditional one, the first one they came out with. But in Jeremiah 15, the, the, the following verses, 19 through 21, the Lord responds to Jeremiah's complaint. Therefore, thus says the Lord to Jeremiah, if you return, and that idea return is an idea of repentance. If you turn, if you return and give up this mistaken tone of distrust and despair, then I will give you again a settled place of quiet and safety and you will be my minister. And if you separate the precious from the vile, cleansing your own heart from unworthy and unwarranted suspicions concerning God's faithfulness, you shall be my mouthpiece. For I am with you to save and deliver you, says the Lord, and I will deliver you out of the hands of the wicked, and I will redeem you out of the palms of the terrible and ruthless tyrants. And, and those enemies were very real. People did not like what Jeremiah was saying and his life was being threatened on a daily basis. And so when God made that promise to him, this was, this was a real life promise. And so we see that Jeremiah was affected by a common delusion that the Lord identified as a mistaken tone. And, and the thing I thought about a tone, it's almost like these clouds of feeling want to settle on top of us. It's, it's not even sometimes directly related to what you're believing. It's actually a tone. It's almost like an illegal atmosphere. I can remember a number of years ago, um, Nathan Scott had torn ligaments in his ankle, and uh, I prayed for him, and he got instantly healed. He went from a wheelchair being unable to walk up steps on Friday to Saturday morning, hiking and carrying his three-year-old son on his shoulders up a mountain. And when he came back uh, to work on Monday morning, when he walked through the door of the building, a cloud of unbelief settled on him, and he had this thought, I was never healed, what was I thinking? 
It was this tone. It was this cloud. It was this unbelief that tried to impose itself. And he said, wait a minute. He had to shake himself. See, these things are very, this battle we're in is, is, is very, it's, a, it's sneaky. He had to shake himself and say, wait a minute, of course I was miraculously healed. He got so healed, he said to me when it happened, I never thought anything like this would ever happen to me. That's how healed he got. And he hiked and he carried his son and he climbed the steps and he had a big weekend. He came back in a cloud of unbelief trying to settle on him and tell him, you were never healed. And he said, yeah, what was I thinking? I was never healed. What? Of course I was. That's like a mistaken tone that tries to then dictate to you how to look at things in your life. Give it up. Reject it. Refuse it. Don't acknowledge it. Don't receive it. However you have to do that. But that's what he was affected by. A mistaken tone. Not just a tone, a mistaken tone. Hmm. His solution, God's solution was simple and profound. He said, give it up. I was thinking about this. I'll go on. David said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen. David knew what destroys despair. Having an accurate understanding that God is good and a deep conviction that he would experience that goodness while he lived in his lifetime, in his experience. True humility refuses to believe what we think or feel when it contradicts the truth and the revealed nature of God. And having a renewed mind is the key that makes that breakthrough real. Now, one of the things you see in Jeremiah's life, and I think it's it's a type or it's a picture, is that I mentioned earlier that first wagon, deliverance from what? Deserved consequences or circumstances. Here's what I've realized. Lots of times circumstantial deliverance is preceded by an emotional deliverance based on changing our beliefs. What am I saying? I'm saying this. Just like the Lord told Jeremiah, I have a quiet, I have a place of quiet and safety for you. I have a ministry for you beyond what you've known. You can actually be my very mouthpiece, but it's on the other side of you giving up this mistaken tone of distrust and despair and of you cleansing your own heart from unworthy suspicions concerning my faithfulness. If you will do those things, you will be able to receive every every blessing I have for you. And the picture the Lord shows me is he's constantly releasing to us grace and mercy. But if we don't have the right posture of heart, we aren't capable of enjoying or receiving those benefits. And it's not that he cuts them off. It's that our condition... Our heart condition does not posture us in a place to receive what it is. God is actually and always continually releasing to us. And if we're not careful, we will begin to accuse the Lord of not being good. Accuse the Lord of not being faithful. When in reality, it's the our own 
posture. It's our own heart condition that has excluded us from the capacity to receive what the Lord's brought our way. That's really important. Let me try to wind this up here. We looked at Jeremiah 15 where he lodges that complaint. The Lord begins to give him a solution. In Jeremiah 17, we see this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. Say that with me. Shall not see when. When good comes. Do you get that? Good comes, you can't see it. Your heart is not postured. You're not in a condition to actually receive what God graciously is always sending our way. But instead they shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And here's Sarah's song, whose hope is the Lord. See, that's the reality of the new covenant. Natural hope died the day Jesus was crucified. But supernatural hope that cannot be impeded was resurrected through the very person of the resurrected Lord Jesus. And that's why Jesus himself really is our hope. It's not just a concept. It's not just a theory. It's not just a doctrine. It's just not, not just letters on a page. We have a living, breathing Savior who ever lives to intercede for us, who loves to answer our prayers, loves to guide us through difficult situations because he really is our hope. He should be like a tree planted by the water, spreads up, blah, 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 on and on. That's really good. Go back and read that. And then Jeremiah made the shift. He wrote this in Jeremiah 29, verse 10 and 11. Let's read that together. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. So, that is this morning's offering from Harbinger of Hope. And I think, I think the Lord's heart too. Um, when I was younger, I was much smarter than I am now. And, and I had a lot more energy and strength. And the older I get, the more I find out how little I know. And it's required me to trust in the Lord way more than I ever have. And when I was driving to church this morning, I was thinking about how, how little I have going within myself to, uh, control and manage my life and or life in general and if you've been crushed enough times you realize that really the only thing that we have going for us is the lord himself 
And the great thing is, is that's everything. Why don't we stand together? Um, Stephen, do we have ministry teams this morning? Uh, it, it, folks, if you need prayer this morning, we've got some folks up here in this area right here that would love to pray with you. Don't be shy. Just come forward after dismissal and there'll be some people here to pray with you. Um, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the wine. We thank you for the word that was served. We thank you for the grace. We thank you for the worship. Lord, we thank you for our families and we thank you for the week that we're headed into. And we pray for all of, we pray over our jobs, our vocations this week as we head into whatever it is that we're doing. We ask you, Spirit, that you would go with us and you would lead us in your wisdom and grace. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.